Joining us today on the Alagos Radio and the Alagos Interview Series is economist Warren Mosler, co-founder of the Center for Full Employment and Price Stability at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and a leader in the field of modern monetary theory. He will speak to us today about money, debt, Greece, the Eurozone, and much more. Warren, thank you for joining us today. Uh, good to be here. Thank you. Let's begin with a question that might seem obvious and yet is something that so few people actually understand. What is money and how is it actually created? Okay, well, you know, if you talk to a different economists, they'll give you different definitions of you know, what money is. So I actually don't even use the word. What our currencies are, such as the euro, the dollar, the yen, those are just the thing uh, needed to pay taxes. They're tax credits, and they're no different than a tax credit you might get for um, solar energy, where the U.S. government might give you a million-dollar tax credit. That's no different than getting a million dollars. And so the currencies we generally talk about are basically just tax credits. Another topic that is often misunderstood, and it relates to this first question, is the role of the central banks, such as the ECB and the Federal Reserve. What are they? Who operates them? How do they operate? And do they actually create money or tax credits? They are like the scorekeeper for the currency, and they are the government's what they call fiscal agent. They have a spreadsheet, just like you would set up a spreadsheet on your computer, and they put debits and they open up accounts for the member banks, their own member banks, and for foreign governments and for a few others. And when the government spends, they uh, put credit into the appropriate account. When it taxes, they debit the appropriate account. And they also generally regulate and supervise the banking system to some degree. So those are the two roles they generally have. And as part of the uh, operator of the spreadsheet, the scorekeeper, so to speak, they've also given the job of determining what's the appropriate interest rate. Because with floating exchange rates, there's no such thing as a market determining rates. It's the government has to set some rate or the rate will just sit there at zero. So in a floating exchange rate, the natural rate of interest, uh, the, the rate without government intervention is zero. And then it's up to the government to, if it wants to support a higher rate, to take some kind of action to do that. And that comes in the form of either paying interest on balances at the central bank, interest on reserves, or selling uh, treasury securities, which are just uh, interest-bearing accounts at the uh, central bank. Now, having discussed this, what then is public debt? What we call the public debt are, for example, in the U.S., are the dollars spent by the government that haven't yet been used to pay taxes. And when the government spends these dollars, they credit bank accounts, they get into various bank accounts. And when they sell treasury securities, which is called borrowing, dollars shift from one type of bank account to another type of bank account called the government bond. The government bond is just a bank account at the Federal Reserve Bank. They call it securities accounts. It's just like a savings account at a normal bank. And the same is true in in the Eurozone. All the government debt in the eurozone are nothing more than savings accounts in the central bank system. You give them euro, you get them back with interest. With negative rates, you got to pay a little interest, but it's the same as a savings account. That's true in Japan, in the UK, any country that has their own currency and issues bonds. uh, The public debt is just the uh, money the government has spent. It hasn't yet been used to pay taxes, and it sits in what are best thought of as either checking accounts or savings accounts at the central bank, or some of it might sit in cash, and that's the public debt. Having brought up the Eurozone, let's look at the situation in Greece. Is the economic crisis in Greece a debt crisis, as it's often described? Well, it is in the, under the current context of the rules and regulations set down. A debt crisis is a crisis. Of, it's a political choice to have a debt crisis. If the central bank, the ECB, guarantees the debt, there's no debt crisis. If they don't guarantee the debt, there is a debt crisis. And so when they, before the debt was guaranteed in 2012, that was before Mario Draghi said, we will do what it takes to prevent default. And saying there's no default is saying the debt is guaranteed. Before that, all the countries were uh, about to uh, come apart because of a debt crisis. But once the central bank 
guaranteed all the debt, then the idea of a debt crisis immediately goes away. Interest rates come down. And what they did was they said, okay, well, there's a guarantee, so there's no debt crisis, but it's conditional. There's conditionality here. It's conditional to where uh, you have to obey the rules. You have to obey the fiscal rules of the European Union. And if you try to violate the fiscal rules, then you're no longer under the umbrella of the central bank guarantee. And so when Greece tried to, uh, there was ri some risk that Greece would step out of the uh, fiscal compliance, then there was risk that their debt would not be guaranteed and suddenly interest rates sh shoot up and suddenly they can't finance themselves and suddenly you have a debt crisis. So yes, there is one potential debt crisis, but it's a political decision. It's not a market situation. It's not something that happens outside of political control. You mentioned the fiscal rules that are enforced in a European Union, and one set of rules has to do with the deficit levels that EU member states can maintain. You have argued that these deficit limits are the cause of the continent-wide crisis. Why do you believe that this is the case, and what is the solution that you have proposed for countries like Greece with regards to the deficit limits? Well, there's a theory of macroeconomics out there that says governments should balance their budgets and then the central bank can use interest rates to uh, control the economy. So you balance your budget. And then if the economy is bad, like it is today, they lower interest rates and that causes the economy to do better. And everything's fine. Everybody has a balanced budget and interest rates are at the appropriate level. So interest rates are like the thermostat on the wall. It gets too cold, you use interest rates to warm things up. And if it gets too hot, you use interest rates to cool things down. And as a follow-up to that, they have quantitative easing, which is just a derivative of interest rate policy. It's, it's basically the same thing. What's happened is Japan's tried that for 20 years and it hasn't worked yet. And the uh, Federal Reserve's been doing it for seven years and still fighting deflation. Japan's had deflation. It's been fighting deflation for 20 years. And the European Union now for about six years. And if you ask any one of them, they say, well, it's just going to take a little bit more time. Okay, so there's one theory that says you just balance your budgets and it's just going to take more time. You just wait. And then to me, the reality is the, this whole idea that using interest rates to control the economy I mean, it just does, plain doesn't work. And so we need to like recognize that fact. And I can give you a couple of reasons why I think it doesn't work. And one of them is that governments are net payers of interest to the economy. Governments pay a lot of euro to bondholders in the European Union. And that's income for the economy. And income is good for the, the economy. That's money to spend. There I go using the word money. Okay, that's it. <laughs> you know, I'll use it casually. And so when Mario Draghi said, we'll do what it takes to prevent default, interest rates came down. Now, that was good for the uh, cosmetic of all the member nations, all their interest rates came down, but that means they pay less interest to the economy. People are earning less interest on their bonds. I mean, an Italian bond now, you earn less than 2%, where you were earning over 7% before on all the new bonds. And so how does cutting back on interest income paid to the economy help the economy? You know, what is the economy? The economy is just spending. GDP is total spending in the economy. It's sales. And if a strong economy means there's strong sales and a weak economy means there's weak sales. And so uh, cutting back on income, reducing interest income, reducing rates reduces interest income to the economy. Now, when the central bank buys bonds, now the central bank holds, so that's called quantitative easing. Now the central bank holds those bonds, those savings accounts, instead instead of somebody in the economy, some entity in the economy. And so the central banks are earning the interest instead of the economy. And the central banks are showing large profits that all that interest would have been earned by the economy. And what does the central bank do with the money? Well, they turn it back to the government, so to speak, but they don't spend it. Okay, they just use it to reduce their debt. And so it, again, it's a drain on income. What they call monetary policy in first instance drains a substantial amount of income from the real economy. And to me, that gives you your first clue as to why this policy doesn't work to make the economy better. Okay, the other idea, which goes back 
300 years. <laughs> Economics is nothing new that I'm going to tell you here. The best way to think about it is, what if everybody decided not to spend anything, any of their income? They just stopped spending any money at all. What would happen to the economy? Well, the answer is it goes to zero. There'd be nothing sold, so there'd be no jobs, no income, you know, no economy. It would be a disaster. So the economy is dependent on people spending their income. And what follows from that is for anyone who spends less than their income, someone else has to spend more than their income to make up for it. Our sales don't hold up. The output doesn't get sold and you have unemployment and you've got no serious economic problems. A large part of the economy that naturally spends less than their income. People get paid, money goes into a pension fund or a contribution or it gets withheld for one thing or another. They don't get all their income to spend and they don't spend it all anyway. They keep a little bit in cash. And then you've got corporations that build reserves and they don't spend their income. Insurance companies take in premiums and they don't spend all their income. They, they save some for later. And uh, all the cash in circulation is income that hasn't been uh, spent yet. Somebody's sitting. And then you have foreign central banks that will uh, hold uh, euros and savings. That's income that hasn't been spent yet. And so you've got all these savings desires, all these entities that uh, try to save euro and spend less than their income. Well, something has to make up for that or else you get a bad economy. And if you look at the first seven or eight years of the euro, the private sector credit expansion was the source. That's where everyone was spending more than their income. They were borrowing for houses. Spain had a big housing boom. They're borrowing for cars. Their business was borrowing to expand. Okay, and so you had all these entities in the private sector spending more than their income to make up for all the entities that were spending less than their income. And it was sort of okay. Unemployment was down from 8% to 7 There wasn't any blood in the streets. People were sort of happy with it. Well, then the crisis hit in 2008, the credit crisis, and suddenly the people who were spending more than their income couldn't do that anymore, and credit growth just stopped. And so now there was no one to make up for all the entities, all the people spending less than their income. There was nobody out there spending more than their income. And so the economy stalled out and unemployment went straight up. Now, governments could very easily make an adjustment to spend more than their income. They could lower taxes or they could increase public spending, public services. And then the government could make up for the lost spending, make up for people's savings, spend more than their income and fill that gap. And by cutting taxes, they could allow private sector to have more income, to have more spending and again, fill up the gap. So depending on your politics, you can either reduce taxes or you can uh, increase public spending. I'm not trying to take sides on the uh, you know the left-right debate here about which is better. But governments can't do that in the European because they're limited by 3% deficits. And that's not enough given the lack of private sector credit and the natural desire to save. Europeans are very good savers. It's not enough to make up for the people not spending their income. So all this income goes unspent and the economy suffers. We are speaking with economist Warren Mosler here on the Alagos Radio in the Alagos interview series. And Warren, from what I understand, you proposed this one solution for the European Union, the loosening of these deficit limits to actually allow countries to run larger deficits. So they don't want to do that because they think we just have to wait longer for interest rates to work. And what I'm saying is, look, let's just use the deficit limit as the thermostat on the wall to control the economy. So it's ice cold right now. So reduce the limit from 3 to maybe 8%. Now, with the central bank guarantee in place, you don't have to worry about markets. Interest rates are going to stay at the ECB policy rate. So the, market, the markets have nothing to say about this. So you increase the deficit limit from, let's say, 3 to 8, that you just add 5%. And that'll add approximately 3, 4, 5% to GDP. Economists might disagree on that, but they'll all agree they'll add a lot. And then each member can decide to either reduce taxes or increase public spending. They can have a big debate about how to get to the new limit if they want to. If they don't want to, they can stay where they are, but they have the option to increase the deficit limit. And unemployment will, every forecaster will immediately drop this unemployment forecast from wherever it is now, somewhere around 11 to probably 9, maybe even less. 
And so unemployment will come down pretty dramatically by full points. And GDP will go up to from near zero to maybe three, four or five percent. And the European Union will be deemed a big success and there'll be you know big parties in the streets and the crisis is over. It's not hard. And there's no economists who would not have that in his forecast if that were to happen. But the policymakers don't think it's necessary. They believe we just have to wait more time for these interest rates to kick in. And they're willing to do that. And they've been waiting, again, 20 years in Japan, seven years in the U.S., and six years in the European Union. What I'm saying is, well, make the fiscal adjustment. If the interest rates do kick in like you think, just reverse the fiscal adjustments. If the economy starts getting too hot and unemployment drops too far and everybody's worried about inflation, then go back to 3%. You know, you don't have to stay there forever if things heat up too much for you. I don't think they will, but you know, should that happen? Uh, you know, it's just as easy to go back in the other direction. But, you know, I'm just one person here saying this. That's my proposal. Now, what is the real debt solution for Greece as he have proposed it? Does it involve Greece paying off its debt or perhaps does it involve a so-called haircut such as the PSI in 2011 and 2012? Yeah, well, look, in the last PSI, the debt was reduced by $100 billion or something, right? And what happened to the economy? It got worse. Why? Because what is the debt? The debt is Greek bonds. What are Greek bonds? Greek bonds are savings accounts at, in the European Central Bank system at the Bank of Greece. And some person, some corporation, some entity, that's their money. They've got a million euro in the Bank of Greece earning interest in a savings account called a Greek bond. And when you take that away, when you reduce the debt by $100 billion, you've reduced the money supply, an important part of the money supply, the base money, what I call base money, by $100 million. It's like a tax. So you've taxed the economy $100 billion euro when they remove the $100 billion euro of Greek debt. So the answer is not right now to remove the money supply to tax the economy. Taxing will make it worse. And debt reduction is a tax. It makes it worse. The Greek debt now is not any kind of a burden to Greece. It's maybe a psychological burden, but it's not an economic burden. First of all, the maturity is 20 years. Second of all, the interest rate's almost nothing. So there's no annual tax, so to speak, that's dedicated towards debt reduction right now. There is no such thing. Whatever debt service is there just gets refinanced and piled on to the end. So for all practical purposes, there is no uh, debt burden for Greece right now. And, and that is not the problem. And debt reduction would only make it worse. What, what Greece actually needs is to have more debt. That's the answer. The answer is they need to reduce taxes and increase public spending, one of the two or some combination. You reduce taxes to increase private sector spending you, or you increase public sector spending to increase spending. But the problem in Greece is the Greeks are very, very good savers. They spend a lower portion of their income than other Europeans. Where does that come from? There has to be some entity that's allowed to spend more than its income to make up for the people spending less than their income. Okay, Otherwise, the output doesn't get sold. It comes back to the same thing. And so because they're good savers, they should be entitled to having a larger budget deficit. They should be able to have lower taxes and higher public spending because the private sector is not doing the spending. So let the public sector, you know, they're defaulting uh, the spending to the public sector. And the irony is that the debt limits in the European Union are rewarding the bad savers and punishing the good savers. The 3% increase in debt allowed every year means that savings, net savings of Euro financial assets in the European Union are only allowed to grow at 3% a year. And any country that requires larger savings than that because of its institutional structure suffers the consequences of high unemployment. And, and the countries that have high private sector debt growth and therefore don't have high net savings desires, you know, they benefit. Now, what sense does that make? And the European Union's 
savings is a virtue. The, the public sector finances, they are just the accounting record of what's going on in the private sector. Okay, they account for what's happening in the private sector. When the public sector spends a euro and they say, okay, there's public spend, sector spending of one euro, that means there's private sector income of one euro. So the public sector spending is the accounting record of the private sector income. When they say there's public sector debt of 100 billion euro, that means there's a private sector savings of 100 billion euro. The public sector debt is the accounting record. It's the uh, number of euro in bank accounts at the ECB system of the private sector. And that's how accounting works. There's a debit on one side, credit on the other side of, of the ledger. And the public sector is one side of the ledger. The private sector is the other side. It's a mirror image. It has to be. Or some accountant's made an arithmetic mistake and he's got to stay late and find his, his error. So yes, savings is a good thing. But the, the European Union is a union of people. It's a union of businesses. It's a union of private entities. The government is there to service the private sector and to support it. So savings is a good thing. That means we want to encourage private sector savings. There's too much private sector debt. We want private sector savings. And the accounting record, <laughs> the evidence of private sector savings is public sector debt. And so if you look at the countries that had the highest private sector savings, it's always the countries that had the highest public sector debt. So it was Greece and Italy, which had the highest debt. Why? Because that's how you accounted for the high private savings. That's how you funded the savings. Loans create deposits. You know, debt funds savings. It's not the other way around. We are on the air with economist Warren Mosler here on the Alagos Radio in the Alagos interview series. And Warren, he have described modern economics as banana republic economics. What do you make of the economic policies that are currently being implemented across the European Union and of agreements such as the recent memorandum agreement between Greece and the so-called Troika? Yeah, so what's happened is the third leg is we have to talk about is exports in the foreign sector. So the European Union has decided that export-led growth is the way to go. And they kind of looked at Germany as the example, as a model, and everybody's trying to do that to be more competitive. And all these programs are designed to reduce costs in Greece to make them more competitive so that they can export. Now, a couple of issues with that, and one of them is the macro issue where the whole world can't be exporters because you can't, everybody can't export. Somebody's got to import. You can't just, where, where's it going to go? To the moon or something? Wherever it goes is, is somebody importing. So at best, you know, all the trade in the world adds up to zero for every export. There's an import. But apart from that, then there's another aspect before I get to the real, the more serious problem. Not that this is any less serious. And that is exports are real costs and imports are real benefits. The real wealth of any region is everything you produce domestically plus uh, everything the rest of the world sends to you minus what you have to send to them. So it's your pile of stuff. Production makes your pile bigger. Imports make your pile bigger. And exports make your pile smaller. You're sending that away. And in fact, if you look at war reparations, when you win the war, the other country sends things to you. You don't send things to them. When Caesar conquered Gaul, Gaul sent grain to Rome. Rome didn't start sending grain to Gaul as war reparations. You pay imports are the real benefit. Exports are real costs. And you use the monetary system to optimize that. And that used to be called real terms of trade. You try and get the most uh, for the least. If you're going to export, the whole point is to get imports. And you try and get as many imports as possible for your exports. Okay, so the idea that export-led growth makes any sense, it, it's completely out of context with today's realities. That did make some sense under what was called mercantilism, where the game was to get as much gold as possible, whoever had the most gold wins. And so you, the big exporters were getting the money, which was gold, and they were building gold stocks. And so whoever got the most gold won. Now, it was just an arbitrary game. And going into World War II, the United States had won the game. We had more gold than anybody else, except we didn't have any tanks or planes or guns and it took us four years to 
on a counterattack. So anyway, back to today's context, exports are real costs, imports are real benefits. So what's the whole point of European Union export or growth strategy? It doesn't make any sense at all. But all that aside, if you're going to do it, the way it's done is, and, and you can look at the old German export led growth model, which was successful on its own terms. You use tight fiscal policy to suppress domestic demand, and you have all kinds of like structural reforms and deals with unions and labor to keep wages down, to keep competitiveness, and, and that helps your exports. Now suddenly you're competitive and you can export. But what that does is it makes your currency go up. And so what the exporters did, what Germany used to do, is they would buy dollars to keep the mark down, sell marks to buy dollars. They, they even bought lira to be able to export to Italy to keep the mark down versus the lira. And so part of the export like growth strategy is you have to buy the other guy's currency whether you like it or not to keep your competitiveness. Otherwise, your currency appreciates and your policy is self-defeating. And that's happened a couple of times over the years in the European Union where just as exports get going a little bit, the euro goes up and, and they go down and you, and you lose your advantages. Now, the problem in the European Union with this strategy is that buying dollars would, for example, is ideologically they can't do it because then it would look like the ECB is building dollar reserves. Well, it look like it. They would be building dollar reserves. We give the appearance that the dollar is backing the euro and they want the euro to be the reserve currency and not the dollar. And so they'd be supporting you know, the dollar's role in the world, whatever that means. And so they just don't do it. They can't do it. And so instead, they just generally let the euro go up. Now, more recently, what um, the central bank's been doing, what Draghi's been doing is been tricking the world's portfolio managers into selling euros by doing things that they think are inflationary, they think are um, expansionary, things that cause the currency to go down. And those are negative interest rates and quantitative easing. All the world's gone to, been Western educated now. They've all gone to the University of Chicago and Stanford and London School of Economics. And they all know that pumping up the money supply through quantitative easing and negative rates makes the currency go down and, and causes inflation. They're wrong because it doesn't. You know, as I explained before, in fact, those policies remove interest income. They're, they're taxes on the economy. They actually cause the currency to get stronger. They cause the price pressures to go lower. You get def They cause deflationary pressures instead of inflationary pressures. We've seen the deflationary pressures on the euro right now bordering on deflation. And the policies of quantitative easing and negative rates have done nothing to ease that. Now, why has the euro gone down? Because they've frightened portfolio managers around the world into selling their euro. So uh, you've got even the Swiss National Bank buy Swiss francs with the euro. They, the Swiss National Bank takes the euro and they've got 33% in dollars. They sold euro to buy dollars. I'm sure they're scared to death of holding the euro because of the quantitative easing and negative rates. Same with the Bank of China, Bank of Japan. They've got all these mainstream type traditionally trained central bankers, just blind fear of holding euro right now. And so that's temporarily kept the euro from appreciating, which it would have otherwise done because the lower euro now has driven trade into a massive surplus, right? I think the last number I saw was 30, 31 billion uh, trade surplus for the, for the last month. The competitiveness is causing a trade surplus, which is sort of the point of the policy. But what that means is when Americans buy you know, an Audi or a Volkswagen, not a diesel, but you know, the other kind of cars, they take their dollars, they give it to the dealer, the dealer sells it, gives them to Mercedes or to Volkswagen, and then they sell the dollars, buy euro, and meet their payroll and build the reserves, whatever they do with their money. And so what happens when you're running a trade surplus is the world is selling dollars to buy euro to buy products, selling yen to buy euro to buy products. 
And so it's continuous upward pressure on the euro, which in this case has been offset by massive portfolio selling. And you can look at the drops in central bank holdings from near 30% to under 20% reserves are you know, in euro right now. And at some point that dries up. Now, an analogy would be if the corn crop failed because it didn't rain and it was a drought. Now, you would think the price would go up because of supply and demand. But if a big company like Cargill Grain or General Mills or somebody had a huge warehouse full of uh, corn and had it backwards and decided and believed that the, the drought was going to cause prices to go down instead of up, and they started selling their warehouse full of corn, well, the price would go down, even though there was a drought and a shortage because all the supply is coming out of the warehouse. That's portfolio selling, so to speak. Now, they're eventually going to run out, and there is a shortage. People are eating more than is being grown, and the price is going to go up at some point. But depending on the size of their warehouse, the price could go down for a long time. It can go down for a year, two years. I can't tell you the timing. But you can see the flows when you see the international accounts. You can see it's going down, and you can see the euro reserves are, are dropping all over the world in all these uh, official type of accounts. And they can only drop so far, and then they're gone. And as they do drop, they're keeping the euro at levels that's supporting a growing trade surplus, which is draining the euros out as fast as they're selling them. And then they're gone, and then everybody's underweight euro or short, and there are no, are no euro to buy back, and then it goes the other way. The Greek government is intending to proceed with a recapitalization of the country's banks, with the threat of a bail-in if this does not take place. What would the impact of either option be for Greece and for its depositors? Right. So bail-in is just a tax on depositors, right? So it's another tax that just removes more euro from the economy, reduces sales, and makes things worse. I don't think any of them understand the role of bank capital. I guess they're looking at it from a safety point of view. But you've got the um, European Union now regulating and supervising the banking system, so they're examining every loan for safety. And you've had years, tens of years, decades of public banks in Europe before the European Union that ran with no capital. Central banks can run with no capital. So the banking system doesn't need capital to operate. Capital is a political decision based on the amount of risk that the regulators decide they want to take on the bank's loan portfolio. But they're supervising and regulating that loan portfolio on a day-to-day basis. So it's kind of like their own loan portfolio. And so they can, it's just as easy to control the risk on the regulatory side as it is on the capital side. And it doesn't seem to come into, enter into the conversation at all. But I don't see any problem with requiring higher capital ratios if they want. And in an environment where banking is profitable, raising capital is not a problem for those ratios. But in the European Union, the problem is it's not a profitable environment for banking. Therefore, it's hard for banks or nearly impossible to raise capital. And so it's a self-defeating policy. If they were to relax the deficit limits from 3 to 8, for example, and the European Union was growing at 3%, banking would be profitable and then there'd be no issue about raising capital. There'd be uh, capital like waiting in line to get in. They'd have to be uh, restricting bank licenses. So you create a weak economy with a low aggregate demand and then you wonder why you can't capitalize your banks. They're speaking out of both sides of their mouth. We are speaking with economist Warren Mosler here on the Alagos Radio and in the Alagos interview series. And Warren, you have presented a solution regarding how Greece could exit the Eurozone in an orderly fashion and without an explosive devaluation of its new currency. Tell us how this could take place. Okay, so I wouldn't call it necessarily a solution, <laughs> but it's an option. So the solution is larger deficits. If the European Union won't allow a larger deficit, if they force spending cuts, if they force taxes that cut spending more, then the option is one to just sit there and suffer and then watch the civilization be destroyed or two to do it on your own, go back to your own currency. And if you're going to do it on your own currency, I have proposals out on how to do that in a way that actually I think works. The first thing you do is you just start taxing and spending in the new currency, let's call it the new drachma. And when you do that, 
that you're not leaving the euro. You're not doing anything. You're not abandoning anything. You're just changing your tax liability from euro to drachma, and you leave the number the same. If it was 100 euro, it's now 100 drachma. And then you start paying your public employees in drachma. And if it was 100 euro, you pay them 100 drachma. So you haven't left anything. You haven't broken any promises or been any treaties or defaulted on any debt. You haven't converted any bank deposits. And specifically, I say don't convert any bank deposits. If the banks have euro deposits, leave them alone. If the debt's in euro, just leave it alone. And the easiest way to explain that is to make a uh, assumption that it's just an arbitrary number now that let's say half the people would want to hold the euro, but half the people would want the new drachma. Half the bank depositors would want to keep the euro and half would want drachma. And so if you convert everything to drachma, now you've got half the money supply, you know, half the funds in the banking system that are very unhappy. They wanted their euro. They don't want the drachma. So they will sell their drachma to buy euro. And that will drive the currency down 30, 40, 50%, just like everyone predicts. And then you start getting inflation in terms of imported prices. And then the central bank doesn't know how to deal with it. So they raise rates and unemployment goes up and you're right back in this disaster, you know, that the Greeks have known so well, which is why they'd rather have high unemployment, but let the Germans run the money than let their own local government run the money, right? Because they've seen what happened before when the local government ran the money. So that's what happens when you convert deposits. You get right back into that mess that politicians and technocrats just can't deal with it. And the government collapses and falls apart and you've got blood in the streets again. If, on the other hand, you don't convert the deposits, you leave them in euro. Now you've got half of those people, you know, the people who want a euro, they're okay, but the other half need drachma to run their businesses, run their lives, pay their kids' tuition, you know, pay their taxes, and they've got euro. So they need to sell their euro to buy drachma to run their lives because there aren't any drachma out there. So they're selling euro to buy drachma. Now the drachma is a strong currency. You've created probably the biggest short squeeze in the history of the world because everybody needs this stuff and there isn't any. And that allows the government to sell drachma at a slight premium to the euro, maybe 101 or something small, so that people can uh, sell their euro, buy drachma at a reasonable price to run their lives. And that keeps the currency stable and it gives the government a source of euro income to pay down and service their euro debt for some period of time. And it gives them a six month, three month, six months, a year breathing space to deal with the new economy and the new realities without having to um, deal with a currency that's collapsing. And it gives them a source of euro income to deal with it. Now, I'm not saying that there won't be other problems like corruption <laughs> whatnot, but at least you're working in the context of a firm currency and euro income to deal with your issues. And so the, the most important thing about conversion is do not convert the bank deposits, just leave them alone. And don't convert the public debt, just, which is just bank deposits in the central bank, just leave it alone. And that will give you a smooth or much much smoother transition period towards running an independent nation. But here's the thing, though. Every proposal I've seen says convert all the bank deposits so you have control over them, whatever that means. And so every one of them, if they do go to drachma, any of the proposals I've seen are going to be a disaster. Well, Warren, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today here on the Alagos Radio and the Alagos Interview Series and for sharing your insights with our listeners. Okay. Good. Thanks for having me on.